Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, a messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ, wrote this little letter some decades after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. He wrote this little letter to a collection of churches in a region called Galatia. And he meant this letter to be an instruction, as you've been hearing in this series so far, in a number of things. But perhaps most critically, an instruction in how to live in that freedom that Jesus gives those who believe in him. First, how to enter into that freedom. He explains in the early chapters of this letter that we do not enter into that freedom. We do not enter into a a right relationship with God as a matter of striving and effort and performance and obedience to religious law and religious ritual. By the law, no man will be justified with God. But none of us can keep the law perfectly. Of course, that's God's standard for us. If we would please God, we we must be without blemish. We must be without fault. We must be without sin and transgression. We, We must be in and of ourselves entirely holy if we're going to please God in that way, if we're going to earn his forgiveness. And so I think I speak on a fair amount of confidence that none of us will make it that way. We have this saying, this cliche, that to err is what? Human. That is true. We are nothing if we are not imperfect. We are nothing if we are not, all of us, at some point, guilty of things that displease God. Even things that displease us. And so if if perfection is the standard for being right with God and and receiving God's forgiveness, well, beloved, we're all lost, aren't we? And so God, in his infinite wisdom, has done something for us that we could not do for ourselves. He's made a way for us to be reconciled to him, to be joined together with him again, not in enmity or hostility, but to be joined together with him in peace, in in love, in, in joy. And that way is the sending of his son, Jesus, into the world in human flesh and human likeness to do two things that God requires of humanity that we could not do. To obey God's law perfectly so that all of the righteous requirements of the law would be fully satisfied and fulfilled. So Christ, as Paul says in another letter, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, has become for us wisdom from God. That is, he has become righteousness and holiness and redemption by obeying God in every way that we have failed God. And more than that, after having lived a life of perfect, perfect obedience to God, Christ has done something that we should have suffered. He's taken our place in judgment. That's what the cross is about. For there the Father is pouring out on the Son the righteous judgment that each of us deserve for that imperfection, for that disobedience, for those flaws and faults, those sins that we have committed against God. And so in his death, Jesus takes our place. And in his death, 
Jesus satisfies God's holy and good and righteous anger against men and women and boys and girls in their sin. He turns the Father's anger away by becoming a sacrifice for us. You will know that he was buried for three days. And on the third day, he rose again from the grave. And in the resurrection, it's as if if God is speaking to the world saying, I am satisfied with my son's sacrifice. I accept it and I receive him back to myself. And here's the marvelous thing. All of those who place their faith in Christ, likewise have Christ as a satisfying offering to God because of our sins. Christ takes away our sins. He turns away God's anger. He dresses us, as it were, in his own righteousness. And those who have faith in Christ stand before God free. Free from the guilt of sin. Free from the shame of sin. Free from the embarrassment of standing for a holy God, unrighteous and unworthy. Free not only from certain things, but free for certain things. Free now to love God. Free now to love others. Free now to serve others and to to give our life away. Free to be free. This is what Galatians 5 verse 1 says. For freedom, Christ has set us free. It's for the enjoyment of this new relationship with God where we're no longer enslaved to sin and cowering in fear before God. It is for freedom in the face of God that Christ has set us free. Think of the children who just left this room to go to their program a moment ago. How when they're gathered in your yards or in your homes and as parents you're standing by talking, what do they do? Well, they don't normally stand there and listen to old people talk. They get bored with that really quickly, don't they? No, they, they skip over to another little friend or they, they find some such thing in the, on the ground and, and they begin to freely play. Uh, unselfconscious, unworried, not, not thinking much about parental disapproval or parental anger, but, but within the bounds of a parent's love and watchful eye, without regard for themselves, relieved of burden, children play. And so it is with the Christian before God the Father, relieved of the burden of sin, without regard for unrighteousness, in the watchful, loving eye and presence of our God, we've been set free to play. And so Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 5, stand firm then. Do not let anyone entangle you again with a yoke of slavery and in bondage to the law. Don't go back to trying to please God with your own efforts. Stand in what Jesus has done for you and let no one enslave you. Guard your freedom. And with that freedom, he says in chapter 5 around verse 6 and 7, that the only thing that matters now is faith expressing itself, working itself out in love for others. And we come down to around verses 11 to 13 and 14 and 15. Again, Paul rings that bell of of love and freedom. That we are set free not to sort of satisfy our selfish desires, but we are set free in order to love and to serve others. 
to give ourselves away. For that's how free we are. We're so free, we don't have to be selfish. We may give ourselves away in love toward others. Paul works his way then to the text that Jacob read for us so wonderfully. Verses 16 to 26. And he wants us to understand something about this freedom that Christ has purchased for us. To keep this freedom, we're going to have to go to war. To keep this freedom, we're going to have to fight a fight that rages around us and even inside of us. If you're the note-taking type, I want to hang our thoughts this, this afternoon on three, three simple observations from Galatians 5, verses 16 to 26. The first observation is this. We are in this war to walk by the Spirit. We have to walk by the Spirit. We see that in verse 16 and verse 25. Which means then we are, number two, to war against the flesh. To war against the flesh. Verses 17 to 21 And we will win, number three, we will win by faith in Jesus. We will win this war by this same faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 22 to 24. So what about this walk by the Spirit? Well, walk there in verse 16 means the same thing as live in verse 25. Walk is just a symbolic way of describing the entire pattern of the Christian life. So your Christian walk is another way of referring to, if you're Christian, how it is you follow and how it is you obey and how it is you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are here, as the text says, we are meant to walk or to live by the Spirit. We are to live with the, with the power and the direction and the illumination and understanding that the Holy Spirit of God gives to all those in whom he dwells by faith in Jesus Christ. So the Christian life is a Spirit-empowered life. It's a Spirit-directed life. It is, if you will, you see in verse 25 there, that we are to keep in step with the Spirit. It is a Spirit-choreographed life. It's a dance that happens in the Christian life. God himself leads in this dance, and we, we follow steps. Now, you wouldn't know it to look at me, but I like to dance. 20 years ago, I used to be pretty good at it. But now I'm kind of stiff, and, you know, I don't move as much as I used to move, and Quite frankly, I I normally just table dance now. I just kind of sway at the table. (laughs) But some years ago, a mutual friend, Ian and Denise and ours, uh, Myra, uh, was a young woman from Venezuela in the Cayman Islands. And and Myra came over to our house, a small group of Christians gathered there weekly to study the Bible. And Myra came over with this, this group of young Christian couples and taught us to dance salsa. What a wonderful form of dancing. What, a, what an energetic form of dancing. And so we cleared the furniture out of the room, and, and Myra says, listen, the first thing you have to understand if you're going to dance this dance called salsa is that the man is the choreographer. The man's the leader in the dance. And I swole up a little bit. Yes, wife, that's right. I, I, I shall lead us, right? And we began to dance, and she says, now the man gives signals to the wife. She says, now the man leads the dance, but the wife is the star. 
So the man's job in this dance is to make the wife really look radiant and to, and to show off his, his partner's dance. And, and he does that choreographing from his head really through his hands. So that if he pushes this way, she knows what kind of turn to make. Or if he pulls this way, she knows what kinds of turn to make. If he steps a certain way and pulls, she knows then what kind of move to make. I'm learning this dance with my wife and I'm dancing. I notice now, every time I get ready to make a move, my wife has already moved. And I said, I'm leading. She says, I'm following. I said, no, you're not. No, you're not. It got so bad I had to tell the teacher on her. I said, Myra, my wife's not listening to me. And so this dance goes on of, of subtle gesture and, and clear move and, and, and clear signal. And, and the partner learns to respond. Something happens like that in the Christian life. The Spirit of God, normally by the Word of God, gives you a, a signal. Turn left, turn right. Dip, step back. Or sometimes, more subjectively, the, the Spirit of God prompts you in some way. He, he brings to mind something that, that seems really vital and key at that moment. He, he seems to lead your heart toward a, toward a decision that, that, that looks good and righteous and is consistent with God's Word, but, but particular to your situation. And so the Spirit is leading in this dance. And Paul says, now, the first thing we got to know about living in the freedom that Jesus gives is when the Spirit signals, then you move. Then you walk. Then you keep in step. But don't get ahead of the Spirit. Don't start signaling to the Spirit that that this is the way I'm going and and why don't you follow me? That's the, that's the reverse the order. That's the, that's the reverse the, the pattern. That's not the dance. In this dance, God is always leading. God is always sending the signal. And we are always responding. And the marvelous thing is this. The Christian life that keeps in step with the Spirit is made beautiful. It's made radiant. The glory of God washes over the Christian. And that glory redounds back to the name of God. If we would make much of our God, and we would have the world see how great that he is, if if we would know the blessing of, of walking with him, then we must keep in step with him. We must live according to his promptings. Notice the result of that in verse 16. If we live this way, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh is the other party in this warfare. The flesh is the, the enemy combatant. That, that's the Bible's way of referring not just to flesh and blood, but it's the Bible's way of referring to our old sin nature. That, that if, we, if, we're, if we're Christians, we, we have this old man inside of us. He, Christ has defeated this old man, but this old man really loves the things of sin, loves the things of the world. This old man is hungry, he has desires, and and you can't feed him because the more you feed him, the hungrier he gets. He's never satisfied. He's an unwelcome guest at your dinner table. He he, he eats up all the leftovers. He he goes to the fridge for more. And and if you feed him, he'll get stronger. And if he gets stronger, he will look to control you. Paul says here now, if you walk with the Spirit, you will slowly starve that old man. You will starve the flesh. He will grow weaker 
by that starvation. And you will grow stronger in the spirit of God. But note here, the battlefield is our desire. This battlefield is fought. This battle is fought on the field of our heart. Which means, beloved, if we're Christians, we must not focus only on our outward actions. We must not become like certain kinds of religious people, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, who were very exacting, very detailed on all the things they did or didn't do and the outward actions of them. But when Jesus spoke to them, he says, inside you are full of dead men's bones. You're like whitewashed gravestones, sparkling in the sun on the outside, corrupt and dead on the inside. That's no victory. Christ has come to renew us from within and to have that shine without. But that means in this warfare, we've got to be focused on our hearts, the things, the things we want. And the temptation in, in society is to think that everything we want must be basically good simply by virtue of the fact that we want it. This is the danger of, we have sayings in things, in states of things like this. We want to keep it real. Right? Or someone's a, a hundred percent authentic. Well, authenticity is a trap if the thing that you're trying to be authentic to is displeasing to God. Keeping it real is slavery if the thing that you're desiring is displeasing to God. And so as Christian people in this warfare, walking by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, we, we want to become skilled at, at Observing our hearts, observing our desires, and fighting this warfare, not at the level of outward actions, but at the level of what's going on in the heart. What are we desiring? Are our desires consistent with God's desires? Have they been measured by God's word? Are they, are they good and honorable in God's sight? Are they lovely and pure and of good report. If so, we give ourselves to those desires gladly. If not, then we have to put those desires to death. And this is where the warfare gets really hard, where you feel the heat of battle, where you can see the bullets whizzing by your eye, where you become more aware of the, of the enemy's power and you become more dependent upon the Spirit. So let me ask you this question. When it comes to walking with the Spirit, is that your desire? Do you desire to learn this dance with the Holy Spirit? That you might be able to walk with Him and talk with Him and do the things that He gives you power to do with increasing consistency and increasing joy and increasing freedom. Is that your desire? Do your particular habits and your particular wants run in the direction of the Holy Spirit or do they run in the direction of your flesh? Walk with the Spirit. Live with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Victory will be yours. Notice now, all of this means, number two, that we have to declare war against the flesh. 
That's what Paul writes there in beginning in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see there in verse 17? The spirit and the flesh are in this irreconcilable war. The spirit wants one thing, the flesh wants another. And these things are opposed to each other. There's no way to make peace between God, the Holy Spirit, and the sinful nature of man. They're never going to hold hands and sing kumbaya. They're never, they're never going to sort of have tea and crumpets or uh, just sort of scones or a proper English breakfast. It's just not going to happen. They're always going to be at odds with each other and enmity with each other. Now, the genuine Christian wishes, he wishes to side with the Spirit. Notice in verse 17 at the end, he says, in this warfare, what's happening is uh, the, the flesh is seeking to keep you from doing the things you want to do. I want to encourage you, because if there's any part of you that wishes to serve God, that does not come from the sinful nature. That comes from God himself. However fledgling is that desire, however weak it may feel to you, and however much it be flickering in the winds of this world, that desire, the lighting of that candle, is done by the hand of God. If you discern any ounce of love in your heart for Christ, if you discern any any molecule of desire to obey Christ, if you can make note of any motion in your in your affections, in your desires, in your wishes to to walk with the Lord, that comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from your enemy. It comes from the one who died for you. That is meant to help you side with Christ. And to help you recognize, as verse 17 says, then that anything that is calling you to sort of go in the opposite direction, that does not come from God. That flickering flame, which Christ will never blow out, that is a flame that Christ has lit. That wind that blows against that flame, threatening to snuff it out and to call you to something else, that comes from your enemy. Side with Christ. For even a weak Christian on Christ's side will be completely victorious in this warfare. Fan that flame, that flicker into a flame. Seek growth and boldness and strength from right where you are. For Christ will give you more and more ground, greater and greater victory, greater and greater wholeness and success at living for him. Push back against the things that, that draw you towards stuff that you don't want to do when you are most spiritually minded. 
when you're most aware of Christ and, and in his word and, and praying to him, when you're most thinking of his cross and his resurrection and, or thinking of passages of the Bible that perhaps you have memorized, when you're most aware of the spirit of God in your life, there are things that you naturally desire, supernaturally desire. Pursue those things. Avoid the opposite. Realize that this is war. And notice the outcome here. The Spirit, if we follow him, has, has done this wonderful work. He, is, he removes the Christian from beneath the law. That's a reference to God's moral law, God's law in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the requirements of God for his people, uh, commands that are meant to be observed, but not for righteousness' sake. So we said before, not to earn your salvation, but really to expose to us our need for a Savior. All the while that we were under the law attempting to please God by our works, we were actually, in fact, condemned by that same law. All that the law can do is point out our failures and our weaknesses. But Christ has come, and Christ has fulfilled the law. Christ has fulfilled the law down to the very smallest punctuation marks, every jot and tittle. And now that we are in Christ by faith, we are under grace. We're under Christ's rule. We're not under the condemnation of the law. We have been removed from that tyranny and we have been set free in Christ. There's another way of saying we've already won the war through faith in Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit. And it is for now, now for us to stand in that victory and to avoid the temptations and snares of the enemy. How do we do that? Well, Paul has written here to give us some clues as to what our enemy's strategies are. You see there he describes them as the the works of the flesh. We we might break these into three categories of, of sinful actions, sinful desires. There are some here that are sexual, there's some here that are sacred, to put that in air quotes. And there's some here that are social. So he says the works of the flesh are, are evident. That means they are, they're clearly seen. We, we know them. We recognize them. And, and we just, we need to name them as such and, and reject them as such. Notice there, sexually, there's sexual immorality, impurity. You may have a translation that says debauchery or sensuality. A little bit later there in verse 2021, 20, uh, he talks about orgies and the like. Our world is carried away with such things. Our world has made such things entertainment. Our world has turned these into commodities to be traded on the screens of Hollywood or traded person to person in unspeakable places. Our world has turned this into the the pursuit of men and women. And God grieves. God grieves that the world has taken things that were meant to be for pleasure, rightly used in the context of marriage, and made them tawdry and cheap and soul-destroying. And Paul says here, you'll know if you're walking with the spirit or the flesh when it comes to these kinds of sexual activities. But number two, the things that we might call sacred. You know, he mentions there idolatry and sorcery, or you may have a translation that says witchcraft. Paul says, now there are also some religious counterfeits. 
that the worship of false gods and the, the practice of dark arts, really, uh, sorcery and magic and witchcraft, at least two have a religious veneer. But they're really the works of the flesh because they're, they're not the proper and true worship of God. It's not the, the celebration of the goodness of God in Christ in accord with his word. It's God who determines how we are to worship him. And he determines it for us in his word. Those who seek him and worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we're called to avoid these works of the flesh, even if they are religious works. And and the social problems that are caused, notice there, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and things like these. Sounds like my family growing up. The youngest of eight kids, there was always enmity and strife. There's always some jealousy and some arguments, some divisions. The interesting things about these social sins is that very many of them have become acceptable sins, respectable sins. We sometimes refer to those who are are jealous as merely competitive. Well, competitive is one thing. Being jealous and having a covetous heart, wanting what others want. We're despising them when they have what we don't want. Well, that's just displeasing before God. Enmity and strife. That's all you see on American television if you follow politics there. Enmity, strife, fits of anger, rivalries. And we feel like as Americans we get a, a regular dose every day of a living illustration of these kinds of things, not just in our our president, but in the members of Congress and in the, the local municipal governments and, and even in many of our churches, sadly, marked by strife and dissension, divisions. But beloved, Christ's body is not divided. Christ's body is one. We are meant in the spirit to be united, to be one family, to be one fellowship, to as it were, be members of the same body. One part an eye, another part an ear, another part a, a hand, another part a, a leg. Each part supplying to the whole so that the whole grows up together. And God in his word here is helping us to see that we live in a world that's characterized by hostility. And we swim all week through a sea of negativity. But in the spirit and in Christ, there is healing and wholeness and oneness and joy. There is peace rather than strife. There is love rather than hostility. So very simply, we should war against the flesh, which in part means we should never deceive ourselves by saying that these kinds of things listed here, we should never say they come from God. We should never associate these things with God. They, they do not come from him. The, the suggestion that we do these things acceptably before God is a great deception. God would have us pull back this curtain and see the things that are wrong in the world, indeed the things that sometimes are wrong in us, and he would have us put these things to death. Which brings us to our third point. We win this war by faith in Jesus. Look there in verses 22 to to 24. Paul writes there, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, 
peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, notice, have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Verse 22 begins with the word, but. It's a simple little conjunction that that turns the direction of thought. He had been describing the the works of the flesh and the destruction, really, that, that comes from the works of the flesh. You see what he says in verse 21? I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so he'd been warning about that direction. And now in verse 22, he uses that word but, and he turns us in the other direction. And by contrast, he tells us about the, the fruit of the Spirit, the, the produce, the, the bunches of produce that are produced in the Christian's life by the Spirit who lives in us. And he gives us that well-known list, the top of which is love. God is love, and those who know God love like God. And then we move from love to joy. And at the announcement of the angels in Luke's gospel, when they come onto the scene, they herald the birth of Christ. Joy to the world, we say. Christ has come to give us joy. And not just joy, but peace. Peace with God and peace with each other and peace inside of ourselves. The quieting, calming rule of God that puts everything in its place. That's our birthright if we are Christians. We are at once at war with God war with each other, at war within ourselves. And Christ has given us a holy shush. And he's ended the rancor and the clamor and the noise. And he is, in a divine sort of way, rocked us to the lullaby of his love and given us peace with the Father and peace with our brothers and sisters and peace with ourselves. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the kind of people that the Spirit of God is making us to be. This means that when you face your impatience in the traffic driving down to Sheffield, you will know that that is temporary. The Spirit of God will work in you a longer patience, a deeper long-suffering. And you will know that when you, perhaps with your children, detect a, a lack of gentleness when you send them into their rooms or tell them to wash the dishes and the Spirit will speak to you that your tone was harsh, you will know that you have freedom to confess that, to turn to Christ and ask forgiveness. And to do that marvelous thing of asking your children for forgiveness. Try that and watch their eyes get really big and not know what to do. But you will know that harshness is not really your character, but, but gentleness. And you will know that, that goodness is, is what the Spirit is, is causing to sort of exude from you, to, to spill out of you, and, and kindness. And, and you will observe that where once certain things seem to control you, now you have the ability to say no to those things. You, you exercise a self-control, a, a self-mastery, that, that there's this newfound sense and a growing sense that your life is in God's hands and, and God has given you a great freedom to choose and to choose well and to follow him 
And all these fruit will be born in in increasing abundance. And, And notice, where those things happen in our lives, Paul ends verse 23 by saying, against such things, there is no law. God has never made a law against love. He's never written an edict against joy. God has never forbidden your peace. God has never sent down a message or a word that outlawed self-control and gentleness and goodness and kindness. These are the kinds of things that you may possess with increasing measure without limit. These are the kinds of things that God himself conspires with you to produce in you and through you. Are you ever curious as to what God is up to in your life? Read these verses. Amidst all the trouble, all the trial, all the difficulty, you may be sure of this, that God is in your life to bring you his love, to bring you his joy, to bring you peace to show you kindness and goodness and mercy, to to create in you self-control and goodness and gentleness. If you are in Christ, he is always and ever on your side to produce in you the riches of this fruit. So I don't know what perplexes you today. I don't know what confuses you today. I don't know what causes you difficulty and struggle. But I do know this. That he's working all things together for your good. And he who began a good work in you, Philippians 1 says, will carry it on until completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That God always and only means to make you more like himself and more like his son. You can trust him. He's a great father. And he's an awesome savior. Against your joy, against peace, and against love, There is no law. Follow the Spirit and get as much as you want. Notice the last thing in this verse, verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We've been talking about this warfare and the need to to choose the right side, to choose Christ and to war against the flesh. We've been talking about the need to walk with the Spirit and to live by the Spirit and to keep in step with the Spirit. That's the means by which we win this war. But I, I wish to sort of correct myself in this sermon by showing you something in this verse. Verse 24, notice this. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. Did you catch that? It's past tense. It's already done. The death that your sin nature must suffer, it suffered that death the moment you believed in Christ. For then your sin was crucified with Christ. And this marvelous thing happens. It's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. And the life that you live in the flesh, you now live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. We're in this warfare, but it's it's not a warfare to determine who will win. Christ has won, and we have won with Christ. He was crucified, and so was our flesh. We put it to death, the old man who has his evil desires and always seeking to, to draw us away. Listen, you say, I, I know very well that I still struggle with some sins and some things confront me. But yes, beloved, that's a defeated army. It's not an army at full strength. 
It's an army backed into a corner trying to hold on to the last little stronghold of your life. The city has been captured. The people have been liberated. The land has been won. The King Jesus Christ has come and been enthroned. Now we're doing away with that few, that small little band of rebels that from time to time make a little trouble. If you are Christ, you have won this victory. You have crucified the flesh. The war is over. And now Christ is sending the rest of his forces into the corners of your heart to put down the last surviving rebels. But the outcome is certain. It's never in jeopardy. Jesus has won. And if you trust in Christ, you have won too. And I trust you see in this text there are really only two ways to live. We either live according to the sinful nature or we live according to the spirit. If the habit of our lives is such that we live according to the sinful nature, we have reason to doubt that we are really Christ. If those are our desires and that's what we give ourselves to, and especially if we don't feel the Holy Spirit tapping us on the shoulder and convicting us of sin and telling us to turn around, we may have reason to stop and to ask ourselves, am I a Christian? Now, It may come to you that the bad news is is that you're not yet a Christian. But the good news is you can be. You can know everything in this Bible as your own personally. All of the freedom, all of the love, all of the forgiveness, all of the joy, all of the peace with God. In fact, you may know the wonder of becoming a child of God, adopted into God's family by this one simple thing. Confessing and repenting your sin, confessing your sin to God, admitting your sin, and turning away from it, and placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who was crucified for your sins, as the one who was buried and resurrected for your salvation, and following him as Lord. The Bible says everyone who confesses Christ as Lord shall be saved, shall be rescued from the judgment of God to come shall, instead of forfeiting the kingdom of God, shall receive it as an heir with Christ. This is the free offer of the gospel. This is the good news that comes to every one of us. This is how you become a Christian, is by confessing your sin, turning away from it, and trusting in Jesus to be your Savior and your God, and following him in that faith. And for you who do, there's a whole new world that's coming. Where there is no sin, there is no death, there is no suffering, there is no immorality. There's only God and his people, his love, and his joy forevermore. This is what Christ has purchased for you, for all who believe in him, for all who are crucified with him by faith and resurrected to newness of life with him by that same faith. So let me correct myself again. I said there were only two ways to live. Actually, there's only one way to live and really live. It's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This church exists to spread that message of God's love to everyone who will receive it. If you've got questions about that, talk with me after the service. Talk to any of the pastors. Talk to the Christian friend who invited you. We would like nothing more than to help you enter God's love and to live in the joy of that love. It's for you. 
receive it. Let's pray together.